<coughs> we turn back to Peter's second letter. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and uh, read uh, from chapter 1, starting in verse 12, down to verse 18. As we consider specifically this morning, Peter as an eyewitness of his majesty. From Second Peter chapter 1, continuing our study, we pick up in verse 12 for context where Peter writes, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we too, being established in the present truth, might not be quickly moved, but have not only our hope, but our rejoicing in our Lord Jesus today, though we have not been privileged yet to be eyewitnesses of his majesty. We look for that day in which every eye will see him, and he will be our redemption. We pray that you would haste that day as he has come. May he come again. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray it for his sake. Amen. A few years ago, the secular humanist organization called American atheists spent considerable money buying a billboard near the entrance to the Lincoln Tunnel in New York City. Their big sign went up on November the 23rd and remained there through the holidays. It depicted a typical nativity scene, Joseph and Mary and the babe in the manger. But the sign says in big letters, you know it's a myth. Well, they don't think it's a myth that a baby boy was born in Bethlehem, of course. The myth is that this particular baby was God the Son, the maker of heaven and earth. The myth is that this baby came into the world to save his people from their sins as Jesus, our Messiah. I don't blame the American atheists for being skeptical. I wish more people were a lot more skeptical, as a matter of fact. There are a lot of frauds and counterfeits out there to be skeptical of. In fact, I learned about a new one this week. Have any of you ever heard of Henry James Prince, an Anglican minister in the uh, uh, 1840s? He declared uh, that he was the Son of God and the Messiah, and uh, leaving the Church of England, he convinced a group, a group of his followers, uh, and they all moved together to a commune in England. At that time, Prince was married to a woman who was old enough to be his mother. But then one day, he announced that he had been ordained by God to take, shocker, 
a second wife who just happened to be a very young girl. In fact, he said that this was a special marriage and would surely be purely spiritual, nothing physical about the marriage whatsoever. But soon his new young wife was pregnant, which disillusioned a few of his followers, but not many. Um, He had his season, I suppose, but the rest of his followers eventually became disillusioned because Prince claimed that he was immortal, but he died in 1899, and the movement died with him. I wish people were a lot more skeptical. The truth is out there, goes the saying. It is out there. But today, the truth seems harder and harder to come by. And every day, it seems, one of the most difficult questions we have to ask ourselves is, whom should we believe? I found a quote by Thomas Jefferson that really said it well. He said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. (laughs) We want to know who is really speaking the truth. Whom can we really believe? I mean, how utterly tragic to find yourself on a path that you thought would lead you to heaven, only to find too late that, as in Bunyan's book, there's a portal to hell at the entrance to heaven. If you're going to base your whole life on something, you want to make sure it's solid. And if you're going to stake your life and eternity on that thing, you really want to make sure it's God's honest truth. By the way, the second year of that billboard campaign, the Catholic League rented a billboard on the other end of the tunnel that had the same kind of picture and said, you know it's real. (laughs) I'd say good for them, but the only one who's winning that sign war was the company renting the signs. But how do we know it's real? We know it's real? How do we know it's real? Well, that's what Peter wants us to consider. And he begins that discussion with us today. It's going to take some time for us to to work through it. But we'd like like to consider with you three points from our passage. I witnessed majesty, ear-scratching myths, and experienced martyrdom. Perhaps I should say excruciating martyrdom. That would be a better E. I witnessed majesty, ear-scratching myths, and excruciating martyrdom. First, I witnessed majesty. Here it is, verse 16. Uh, the texts where we pick up from last week, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That word for at the beginning connects it to what he's just said. The sense is, I want you to remember all these things that I have told you after I am gone because... This will still remain the foundation of your faith. That is to say, the apostolic eyewitness to Jesus. And you notice that in the previous verses, 12 through 15, Peter was using the singular pronoun I, I, I. But now, talking about the eyewitness of his majesty, in verse 16 and following, he shifts to the plural we. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This was a very different revelation than most of the frauds in the history of the world. Uh, Muhammad got his truth from an angel in a cave, he said. Joseph Smith said that he found some golden plates which were hidden away, but he could miraculously translate. Uh, Others 
arrived at their truth through thinking and meditation. Very, very different is the revelation of the truth of God to the world who came in flesh and blood in Jesus, where we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the public nature of that revelation, that flesh and blood reality that had come among men, the countless miracles reinforcing the most astonishing message. In fact, God had become incarnate to die for our sins and to reconcile us to himself forever in love. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. John put it that way, this way in his first letter. That which was from the beginning, that is Jesus, who was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. Well, Buddy Howe's Sunday School has reminded us that from a legal perspective, life and death are regularly in the hands of credible eyewitnesses. And I was interested to learn some weeks ago that eyewitnesses are called primary evidence, but things like fingerprints or physical evidence, that's called secondary evidence, giving you a sense of the importance of eyewitness testimony to the lives of the people on trial. Peter and several others, of course, have left us eyewitness testimony of the greatest things the world has ever seen. And you remember what Peter said to those Jewish rulers who had arrested him after Pentecost? We cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. He were appointed as, they were appointed as eyewitnesses of Christ, of the miracles and the majesty and the message of Jesus. Now, here he reminds them in particular of a rather unusual event that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record, but what was not at all typical in the Lord's ministry. Uh, Jeff quoted earlier um, uh, Wesley's hymn, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See. When he saw Jesus, even if he was performing the most extraordinary of works, he looked very much like a man like you and me, um, nothing that would cause men to marvel, says the prophet. But there was this one time that Peter, James, and John were up on a mountain, and uh, Jesus was not getting much encouragement or help from his disciples. And he was on the way to the cross. And there, for a brief moment, He was transfigured before them, the Bible says. That there on the top of that mountain, they saw the face of Jesus begin to shine like the sun. His clothes became white as the light. And there was Moses and Elijah who, speaking with him, who understood what Jesus was about to do. There was a bright cloud of glory and then the voice of God that came from it saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear him. And so, for that, uh, however long that moment was on the mountain, they saw truly the majesty 
of their Lord Jesus Christ. It was an experience that left an impression. It was, in some ways, the most supernatural moment in Jesus' public life and ministry, if you will. And that being so, it was an anticipation of the glorious return that he would make to judge the world, which Peter is about to take up. Those false teachers were denying the second coming. Peter and the others, they say, look, we we saw the divine glory on the mountain, and we have no doubt that this is the judge of all the earth. At his first coming, there was no glory to be seen. A babe in a manger wasn't likely to leave a life-changing impression on anyone. But that babe in the manger was, in fact, the maker of the stars. And we could never be saved from our sin. This could never have brought us any hope unless that babe born to Mary had been the living God. Only a man could bleed and die, but only a man who was God could die a death sufficient for our sins. Only he could open the way of life to all uh, who could come to him, who would come to him in the focus of the Bible. Although it falls more on the cross and less on the manger, we understand that the cross is only the cross because of who was in fact born for us in the city of David, that Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Point one, they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Second, Peter describes ear-scratching myths. Ear-scratching myths. When he says in verse 16 that we didn't follow cunningly devised fables, that Greek word for fables comes right into English as myths. Uh, Muthos, which some of you actually have it as myths. This is a jab at the false teachers who were troubling Peter's readers. Hey, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. That billboard insisted Jesus is a myth. Professor Donald McLeod, uh, retired now from the Free Church Seminary in Edinburgh, he wrote a nice article for his newspaper, the West Highland Free Press, called, Is Jesus a Myth? When people say such things, he writes, that Jesus is a myth, he says it's tempting to ask with C.S. Lewis exactly how many myths people are familiar with. Are they saying that from their vast knowledge of Akkadian, Babylonian, and Latin myths that they can tell one a mile off? Do they know at once that the Gospel of Luke is no different from the story of Romulus and Remus, who were sired by Hercules, according to their mother, uh, sorry, abandoned by their mother and suckled by a wolf before Romulus went on to found the eternal city of Rome? Is that the kind of thing that these men are writing? Are these the mythical ravings of unenlightened primitives? Yeah, there was a day when some carolers were in the courtyard below. And C.S. Lewis's colleague looked down and said to him, Isn't it good that we know now better than they did? Lewis asked, What do you mean? Well, he said, Isn't it good we know now that virgins don't have babies? Lewis looked at him incredulously and said, Don't you think they knew that? That's the whole point. Joseph wanted to put away his wife, not because he didn't know where babies come from, but because he knew perfectly well 
Look, you can accuse the biblical authors of an enormous conspiracy, but don't say they are writing myth. It's obviously meant to be taken with full seriousness as history, as an account of things that happen. Jesus was born when Herod was king in Judea, and Quirinius was governor in Syria, and Caesar Augustus ruled the Roman Empire, and so forth. It happened in connection with things as real as taxation, when Herod was losing what little he had left of his mind. These things are written as history, not as myth. Now, if you ever do read any of the Gnostic Gospels, you'll know that this is a very different kind of writing you're dealing with. So that at the resurrection, for example, after uh, Jesus comes out of the tomb, uh, then we read a giant floating cross comes out of the tomb. And that, that giant cross starts to speak. Okay, n- now we're dealing with something a little different. Um, that is the stuff of myths. Peter, taking again a jab at these false teachers, says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. Myths were a big problem even early on. Paul uses that word several times to refer to false teachers. He warned Timothy, uh, instructs certain men not to teach strange doctrines or pay attention to myths. Again, next chapter, have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women, the same word. Paul told Titus to warn people that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And finally, in his last letter to Timothy, Paul adds, the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires who will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Myths. Someone is making up stories, Peter says. And he's very clear who it is and why they're doing it, starting in the next chapter. For no matter how cunningly devised those fables are or were, the result always seems to be the same. There always seems to be something about their teaching that is very, very agreeable to the culture roundabout. I mean, you wouldn't expect that God would think just like American people alive at this particular time in the world, would you? But false teaching is invariably popular because it affirms people in what their itching ears most want to hear. There's a lot of people offering to tell us what we really want to believe. Now, the false teachers don't come and say, thus saith the culture, or thus saith the latest opinion poll, or thus saith the latest trend. No, they say, thus saith the Lord, but then they tell you what agrees with modern Americans. So look, for example, just right into chapter 2, because this is the context of what he's saying after he tells us positively about the eyewitness testimony and then the scriptures, his strong emphasis. Now he turns the corner in chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, 
and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness or lust, they will exploit you with deceptive words. By lust or covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. These false teachers, he'll go on to say, are promoting immorality, particularly sexual immorality, and denying that Jesus is coming to judge the world. Well, how convenient. That sounds exciting. The teaching that Peter and the other apostles were giving sounded um, quite tame in comparison. Not as attractive. For people have never liked the Bible's teaching on sin and guilt before a good and holy God. People do not like to hear that they are in fact sinful, unworthy, and liable to divine eternal judgment as the Bible warns so frequently and urgently that they are. They do not want to believe that they are hell-bound and in need of a salvation that requires nothing less than the cross of Christ to deliver them. They think themselves much better than that. But it, in fact, took God coming into the world, becoming a man, suffering the rejection of his own creatures, eventually to be murdered by them. I say it took that to rid us of our sin and guilt. And if so, we must have a lot of sin and guilt to remove. If it took the greatest thing that ever happened in the world to deliver us, we must have been in great need of that deliverance. That is the truth, as unwelcome as it is to modern ears. Beware of ear-scratching myths, he says. We didn't follow any cunningly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. More about that next time in the reliability of their testimony in the scriptures, which of course is the big question for us. But simply to point out so far, we should believe the apostles because, number one, they were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And second, they did not follow the cunningly devised fables or myths as so many others obviously had. But there is one more important reason in our passage where I began reading the excruciating martyrdom. Excruciating martyrdom for the he says in verse 14, I know that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. He is writing his final letter to the church and wanting to make sure that they had certain things, as it were, ringing in their ears. The Lord had told Peter earlier that he would seal his testimony with his life's blood. Now, unlike in the case of myth writers, these apostles didn't gain anything in the world from their teaching, right? Um, yeah, Peter didn't get any extra women, okay? Uh, like David Koresh, like Joseph Smith, like Mohammed, like Henry James Prince in England. They didn't get any more wives. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 makes clear, church leaders are held to a higher standard than everyone else. I mean, if you were going to make up a fraudulent religious system, it seems like the least sensible thing to do. As a matter of fact, Paul had been a rising star and a ruler in the nation before Jesus called him. He not only gave that all up, he gave it up for a list of sufferings that has no parallel in human history, except for perhaps Jesus. 
Peter and the other eyewitnesses were killed in the most unspeakable ways under Herod, excuse me, under Nero, because they refused to give up their testimony that Jesus was the Lord of all. Uh, all except John, I should say, who was exiled for years on a Roman penal colony. The rest excruciatingly martyred. And we know from the correspondence of the governor Pliny to the emperor Trajan that Romans were ready to let the Christians go if they just recanted. That's what they wanted to happen. They wanted those eyewitnesses to change their story and say, yeah, it was just myths. And Nero, for his part, hated the Christians. You did not want to be a Christian in his day. If there were any way for these people to deny the risen Christ, they would have done so. Um, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, who wrote that massive set on um, uh, eyewitness testimony, still the foundation of our legal code in America for, regarding witnesses, he said of these noble witnesses, the apostles, the annals of military warfare scarcely afford an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unflinching courage. They had every possible motive to review the grounds of their faith carefully and the evidences of the great facts and the truths they asserted. But finding themselves unable to recant, they and their families died the most, by the most gruesome methods of torture ever devised by man. And it was at that time, in the first century, that the <laughs> well, But to say very soberly, it was at this time that the Greek word for witness, uh, martus, um, took on a new meaning, a terrible meaning. Martyr. Witness, the word witness became the word for martyr. Do not dismiss the testimony of such men. They warn us that the time will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine. They'll heap up for themselves teachers to have their ears tickled. They will heap up fables, myths. Do you want to know the truth? Or do you want to be swept away by myths and the error of the wicked? Do you want to know the truth? Or do you want to be tickled? Peter goes on to commend the prophetic scriptures that he says have taught all these things at all times and that we have only had these things confirmed. Do you know the Bible? Do you know the biblical standards, and do you check all things by them? We're not supposed to be chasing the latest theories, which coincidentally seem to agree perfectly with modern American culture. God has sent His Son to be a light to His people, a light to the world. He didn't say what they wanted Him to say. Jesus didn't say what they wanted him to say. He said according to God's will, and this is what we need to trust. There is plenty of reason 
to trust so many eyewitnesses whose writings cut against the grain of any age, whose writings do not bear the marks of fables, and who seal their testimony with their life's blood. There is good reason to believe in those eyewitnesses of His majesty. And yet, we Christians know that faith is not simply an intellectual exercise. I mean, you can have all the evidence, and you can understand it and affirm it in a logical way, but that does not equal saving faith, for you must then commit yourself to the one at the center of it all, Jesus Christ, the one who was at the beginning with God and who was God and who became flesh and dwelt among us that we might behold His glory. The story, it seems, is too great, but again, nothing less could do than to have Emmanuel, God with us. So I say in conclusion, this is what makes Jesus so impossibly important. For the truly astounding thing of Him is that He did not begin to exist when He was conceived in the womb of His mother. He's always been that this one that was lying in a manger, had visited Abraham and wrestled with Jacob and spoken from the burning bush and led his people out of Egypt. And when he was born of a virgin to redeem us to God, Edersheim called it the world's greatest event, or Dorothy Sayers, the English novelist and playwright. She said it's the only thing that has ever really happened. And it isn't myth And it isn't merely history. It's news, good news, to be shouted from the housetops and pondered at length by sages and made the subject of joyful song that the Creator Himself has come and appeared incognito, willing to endure the most excruciating treatment from the hands of His own creatures, if only He might win their salvation, delivering them from sin and death, the bondage to their cruelest masters to restore them to God. I mean, frankly, compared to all this, all the myths, all the fables, all the human stories, all tales of adventure, of sacrificial and desperate love and battles pale. It's the only thing that's ever really happened. Sayers again says, you can call it exhilarating, or you can call it devastating, but if you call it dull, words have no meaning. Why are we trying to adapt Jesus to suit the taste of any skeptic, she asks. Surely it is not the business of the church to adapt Christ to men, but to adapt men to Christ. And let me tell you this, if you need to believe on him today, we believe in Jesus supremely because we have encountered the Lord Jesus ourselves, which would be impossible if he were only a man long since dead. But he lives. He lives. He's always lived. It is not difficult to believe in someone whom you yourself have come to know, and all the more someone who has had such a tremendous influence on you and your world. And you see how very real our religion is, not from some ideas of faith divorced from reality. For even if you could find all the ideas of Christianity in some other religion, that would not give you Christianity. For Christianity depends not upon a complex of ideas merely, but upon a person 
who in the fullness of time was sent forth. God sent forth His Son, born under the law, to redeem those under law. And without that person of Jesus, the world is altogether dark. Humanity equally lost under the guilt of sin and the darkness of ignorance. But this good news means the dawning of the light, life, and love of the world. By such light, we are able to see. We do not have to try to ascend to God in our poor imaginations, for God has descended to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in how we long to be as they were on that day up on the mountain, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. The tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him, so shall it be. And yet we who have longed for his appearing say, Come, Lord Jesus, even as you came the first time to deliver us from sin and guilt, Come now and bring the hope and fulfillment of the world to its consummation. May the creation itself be liberated from its bondage to vanity and decay. And may we who have had the first fruits of that adoption, even the Holy Spirit, may we know the full redemption as the children of God. We pray, our Father, that this hope would ring forth in our lives and in the world and that we would have all the confidence intended by you that by taking our stand from such strong words by your chosen witnesses to all the earth, that we too would be able to bring life and light and joy.